Welcome to the Faith and Grief Podcast, where we explore the intersection of faith and grief. I'm your host, Shelley Craig, Program Director at Faith and Grief. We're a nonprofit that provides grief support programs in person and online through support gatherings, grief workshops, and retreats. Find out more about our programs and this podcast at faithandgrief.org. We hope the stories and interviews you hear provide some comfort and hope on your grief journey. On today's episode, we'll be speaking with Tyra Dam. She's a regular contributor to the Dallas Morning News, and she's also a seventh grade language arts teacher. In 2009, she lost her beloved husband, Steve, to a brain cancer. Tell me what got you back into teaching? Um, well, this is, I'm finishing my eighth year of teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, I changed careers in 2013. Um, I was a journalist full time. Mm-hmm. So I went to the University of North Texas, studied journalism. It had been my dream since I was eight to work for newspapers. And um, so I did that all over Texas. And then in 2005, um, our second child was born. And so I quit the Dallas Morning News, but then started freelancing right away from home so that I could take care of two kids. And my husband, Steve, had a really demanding job. And so we made that work. And then um, he was diagnosed with brain cancer in 2007. And so he was able to continue working and I was able to continue to freelance really from almost anywhere. So even MD Anderson visits, you know, I would have my laptop with me or all the ER visits we would have, I would continue to work. He passed away in September, 2009. And I did the best I could to continue freelancing, but it's not a good single mom job. Freelance is good when it's a second income, um, but being the sole provider, it really made me nervous. You know, I just, I wasn't sure that one, I could afford insurance long-term for the kids and I, and two, um, just the hours are, you know, not great. And some months you make more than others. So with all that in mind, I knew I needed a different career. So um, I've been passionate about education since I was really young and um, had written some about it. So it seemed like a good fit and, you know, having a schedule that would work with the kids. So I was working um, full-time at a church in communications. And then on the, at nights and on weekends, I would study to get my teaching certificate. So I started that in 2013. Oh, wow. I think so many people have those second chapter uh, careers. And I think that none of us probably will ever have just one career in our lifetime. Uh, you know, that's just uh, unusual uh, these days. So I was just interested because I was like, well, I know your work from the Dallas Morning News. I know you're uh, contributing articles all the time and you've been so open and willing to talk about your own grief journey and talk about grief a lot. So during this past year, what has it been like being a teacher during the pandemic, a writer, a freelancer during the pandemic and a parent on top of that? Oh, it's um, a whole bunch of challenges like everyone has had. Um, So as far as teaching, you know, this time last year, we were, everyone was at home. And so it was a big shift. It was really hard for me. I am really attached to my students. And so, you know, in March, when we left for spring break, it just didn't occur to me that I wouldn't see them in the classroom again, you know? So I tried really hard to stay connected with them throughout that end of the year And then the summer was just a lot of, um, we thought we had plans and then they would change them, right? Like that's everybody. Like we've learned in the past year that plans are just a a vague idea, right? Like there's a lot of things we can't control. 
So um, teaching this year, I've been in the classroom, masking, social distancing. I have some students face-to-face and then I have some students virtual. So mm-hmm. I teach I teach language arts. And so two of my classes, they're all virtual and one class is face-to-face. So that's been a huge adjustment. Um, teaching the same content, but in a completely different way Sure. to reach those kids who are at home, you know, and building relationships to me is the most important part of teaching. And so it was a challenge, you know, to build those relationships when there's a screen between us with 12 year olds I've never seen in real life before. So that was an adjustment for them and for me, but I think, you know, we're almost done, but I think we figured out how to make it work. And then writing, I, I am very lucky because the column I write, my editors just let me write about what I want to. It's, it started out as really a parenting column because the kids were really young when I started 13 years ago. And it's sort of just drifted as my life has changed. And so a lot of this year has been writing about the pandemic, the adjustments that we're all making, the grief that we feel, right? Because right. Um, grief is not just a death, right? It's it's a loss or it's a change. And so um, writing about that has been an important part of the year. And then as a parent, my 19-year-old is in college, and so he's had a huge adjustment because a lot of his classes are online, and he's out of state. So for me, it's a lot of faith that he's going to make a choices and that he is staying connected, being at a, a school where he doesn't know many people from home. My 15-year-old, she's had the same challenges a lot of teenagers have, feeling disconnected in a lot of ways, missing the activities that we used to have, some of the social events that were a part of her life are not there right now. And so parenting her through that has been a challenge as well. Um, and I know these are not unique, right? Everyone is dealing with these things and helping others through it as well as ourselves. Yeah. I've, I've almost decided we need to get some new uh, vocabulary. Maybe we need to go to a different language or something because we've yeah. worn out the word challenging, unprecedented, mm-hmm crisis. There's so many things that we've uh, experienced this year. Um, But like you said, we all have experienced grief at some level during this time. Uh, Many people 14, 15 months ago, you know, were just going about their business. And and certainly there were plenty of people who were grieving before this. But this time of, of stillness at times and disconnection just because we're not in our normal habits and not doing all the busy stuff that we normally do. Um, some folks who are grieving, it comes back because right. of the quietness, but also we're just, there's just been a huge amount of loss um, right. on so many levels in your writing. And maybe those readers who uh, reach out to you, what are they talking about during this time? What have they said? Well, some of my readers have expressed um, almost guilt, and I think I feel this a little too, in that they haven't been ill. You know, I haven't been ill. Um, I have lost friends, but not my closest friends. I haven't, I haven't lost any family members to COVID. And so I feel, and I think some of my readers feel a little sheltered at times because we haven't felt that huge loss from COVID that some people have or communities have felt. A lot of them write about new habits. You know, this has forced everyone to slow down in some ways and to consider what's really important. And so um, I write a lot about that and my readers respond to that as well. Creating new habits or letting go of things that we realize weren't as important perhaps 
my readership tends to skew a little older, probably because newspaper readers, you know, are older, at least the ones who write me. Yeah. Um, and so they, sh they share a lot of, um, of stories about staying in touch with family members in a new way, you know, not being able to visit children and grandchildren or having to um, adopt technology in a way that they didn't need to before, kind of pushing them out of their comfort zone. And I think, I think that's been huge too this past, this past 15 months is we all had a comfort zone and we've all been pushed out of it. Most of us not because we chose it, right? right. So to me, there's a difference. When you push yourself and you challenge yourself, you're prepared. None of us were prepared for what happened. And so, um, but I think at the same time, people are finding silver linings and they're finding, finding what they can that's good from all of this while also honoring um, the people who've been ill and those who died and those families who feel that loss and were not able to grieve in the way that our traditions have supported in the past. You know, it's just, it's just made it really hard to even grieve in a way that we expect or that we have done in the past. Yeah. I mean, we hear it from the participants in our programs over this last year, both from those who were grieving before the pandemic started and those mm -hmm. who've lost a loved one during this time. None of it's been uh, typical. And so I hate to use the word normal because I don't think there is really a normal anymore. <laughs> typical, mm -hmm. what, we're, what we're used to. And like you said, many people haven't been able to have a funeral. They haven't been able to grieve in a formal way or in any mm -hmm. way that they in a, sort of imagined would happen. It's definitely been unusual in that sense. And then there's so many people who have experienced that, uh, which is, right. you know, the numbers are far too high to, to go into because there's just so many people there. As far as your readers, what about your students? How have they been doing? That's a good question. Um, I teach gifted and talented students. I've had, well, my numbers have varied, but right now I have 78. I think I started the year with 83. It, you know, we've had moves and different reasons why the numbers change, but they are typically very deep thinkers. They're very aware, you know, of current events. And my virtual kids, the kids who are learning from home, there's a deliberate reason for that. And so they have celebrated the news of the vaccine. They were really interested to know if I was getting vaccinated and they've been very protective of their families and then of me. Um, it's really sweet because when I check in with them individually or as a group to ask how they're doing, a lot of them instantly ask, we're okay, but how are you? Because they, um, they recognize that, you know, working in these conditions, especially early in the fall when we didn't really know what it would look like at school. Sure. They are adjusting. They're being forced to adjust in ways that I make. I know they're building resilience, but I wish they didn't have to. My hope is they'll look back on this time and realize how strong they are because of what we went through. You know, that they, we've all made sacrifices. They've had to cut back on their activities. A lot of my um, families are first or second generation immigrants. And so a lot of my families typically will travel um, to Asia for the summer or over a long holiday. And they've not seen grandparents, aunts and uncles you know, for almost two years now, as they traditionally would have. And that's been a really big toll on them because the family unit is so important. Mm. Um, and so they express that in their writing more than by talking, you know. 
So I've learned a lot. It's great as an, a language arts teacher because I, I really get to know them from what they share in their writing. Yeah. And I wonder with this age group, so they're 12 and 13 now, like what, what they remember as normal. You know, I mean, I know, of course, they have memories of 15 months ago, um, but I wonder how long this adjustment period will be and then long term what they'll remember about life before COVID. But right now, I mean, they, they adjust pretty well. They are obviously, they were born with technology in their hands pretty much. So right. Exactly. Well, I, I said for the digital natives that they are, um, you know, if, if there was a time for this to happen, we at least do have the technology. I mean, it feels like you're talking about the $6 million man, but, you know, we have the technology and we do. Um, it's not been easy to adjust to, you know, school through Zoom or, or you know, just uh, FaceTiming family and friends and not having holidays, like like you mentioned, your uh, students not being able to travel like they normally would to visit friends and family. And um, I think all of us have felt that, like it's just been so weird, but the technology has been there. I love what you said about being a language arts teacher and you get a better view of, of your students from their writing. I think it's so true because for them, they live so much of their lives online. Right. And that's, you find out a lot more there about them <laughs> than you Absolutely. do face, than you do maybe in a classroom situation, because I think that's a benefit of being a language arts teacher. You do get to know your students in a different way. Absolutely. And it's, it's a good way. This is a great age to introduce um, objective news stories and then allow them to express their opinions. Um, they're really starting to, you know, move away from maybe what their parents' opinions are. And I just... I see them um, forming um, their own ideas. And so it's exciting to see that, you know, I don't see it all the way through to fruition. You know, a lot of that will mature and develop after they leave me, but it's fun to be here for that beginning stage where they're starting to really see themselves separate maybe from their family unit and establish their own identity. Yeah, I think in one of your recent articles, you were talking about critical thinking being so important and just, for this age group, um, it, it, it is. But, I, I mean, when we all think back, I, there's so many things that you remember from the middle school years. You don't really remember elementary school as well. You might have had a cool teacher or a nice teacher or whatever and a couple of things. But middle school is when things start to, like, start to get solid a little bit. And right, yeah. yeah. So it is. it must be exciting to see that, start to think about who they really are and what their thoughts and beliefs are and that type of thing. Yeah. Well, um, we haven't talked much about Steve. Tell me about Steve. Um, well, Steve was um, bigger than life in a lot of ways. We called him a Renaissance man. He, <laughs> he was a musician, so he played trumpet in high school and college. Um, he marched with the University of Michigan marching band. He played trumpet actually in our church um, with the church choir. He sang in our church choir. He had an English literature degree and an MBA, so he was kind of the best of both worlds. That idea of critical thinking and being really well-read, but also being able to analyze um, and make tough decisions. So he spent most of his career with Children's Medical Center as an administrator, and he founded the first clinic at the time. It was called Physicians for Children, and it was set up to give patients with CHIP and Medicaid um, access to quality pediatric care. So it looked like a regular pediatric office, like 
um, you know, kind of typical suburban families would take their kids to instead of those families relying on the ER mm-hmm. for, uh, for needs. And so um, he established that and then he expanded it. And now I don't know how many tens of thousands of kids are treated in that based on that model that he developed for children's. He was really um, charming and outgoing. I'm pretty introverted and he was my opposite in that way. He had done theater in um, high school and then actually did community theater when we lived in Lubbock. And then he was a runner. Um, He discovered that, I would tease with him, he started running when we had our first child, Cooper. And he was, he didn't just train for a 5k, he trained for a marathon. Right. So like he was gone for these long runs and I had this baby at home. Um, but it was just a way for him to, he was always pushing himself and like discovering new passions. And so he was, he actually ran, I want to say he was on a, what he would call a three mile jog to me, that's three miles is like a big commitment, but he was on a three mile jog. And then the next day he had an MRI, um, for some symptoms that were concerning. We didn't know how to piece it all together, but he had, um, He was having trouble swallowing liquids. He had a headache the Tylenol wouldn't fix. When we talked on the cell phone, his words sound a little slurred. In person, I couldn't catch it. And so he lived with those symptoms for, I don't know, four or five weeks. And we finally said, no, we should see the doctor. And so they ordered an MRI and we were at a little hospital here in Frisco. And, um, they were stalling for time. We could tell that the tech who did the MRI, he came out and talked to us. He tried some small talk and um, it was a little awkward. Steve and I didn't want to say anything in front of the tech, but it felt awkward, but we you know, kind of gave each other glances. And finally they called us back into a room. They had called in a radiologist to read the scans right away. And so it felt like being on a TV drama because we were just in there with doctors and it was dark and they had the films and there was a scan of Steve's brain and then there was a spot and they said, this is what's concerning. And then Steve's doctor was on the phone and this was in the evening. And so they told us all the things it could be and what we hoped it would be. We were hoping for deep myelination. We were hoping, I don't know, for three or four things, leukemia would have been a good option, they said. And they said the worst thing would be a brain tumor. And so no one believed that Steve had a brain tumor. He had jogged the night before. He was fully functional. There was nothing other than these strange symptoms. Um, And then, gosh, probably five weeks later, um, we finally had a biopsy at MD Anderson. And it was a really risky biopsy. So the location of the tumor was in the pons, which is a really small part at the back of the brain Uh that um, all the function of the brain funnels through. And so um, we knew something was there. We couldn't just take it out. When they had taken out masses from the ponds um, in the 1980s, everyone died. I mean, there was just nothing. It's hard to avoid the healthy tissue. Right, right. Very much so. So the biopsy was twice as long as they expected it to be. And then they told us that the um, quick analysis was that it was a brain tumor, either level three or four. Mm. And the final results told us level four. And they told us that he would have four to six months to live most likely. Um, Cooper was six and Katie was two. And so our goal was just to beat the odds. Um, You know, we prayed for a miracle. And of course the biggest miracle would be that 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 all of the treatment would make the tumor go away. 
But we also had to live with that really tough realism that no one had ever seen that kind of tumor in that location go away, right? And so we also prayed for little miracles that we could, yes, you know, so um, have chemotherapy every day as planned, that he could work as long as he wanted to because work is one of those things that helped, gave him purpose, you know, that he would live long enough so that Cooper and Katie would have memories of him. So we, the miracles we prayed for, um, they kind of varied day by day and in, in the circumstances. And so he actually lived 18 months with the, the tumor that we called the damn spot based on our last name. And it gave us a chance to curse a little bit about how much we disliked oh, the tumor. So appropriate. So appropriate. So appropriate. I mean, I would have made t-shirts like, I mean, you know, like that would have been, yeah. And you're allowed to say that cancer doesn't, Uh, cancer doesn't not get cuss words. Cancer deserves cuss words. Yes, it totally does. And I'm, and I'm not um, one who curses. So, um, he passed away in September, 2009 and really the last, well, he, we had hospice care for, I think about six weeks which is longer than most, you know, we had both discussed not waiting until it was too late to really get the benefits of hospice, but that's always hard because so many people view it as giving up. Yeah. Um, and so, but really probably the last four to five months of his life, the quality of life was deteriorating. Um, so he, the kids were four and eight when he passed away and um, we've been, or I've been trying to, you know, honor his legacy ever since. And it's been a long time, you know, he's been gone a long time, but he's just still very important to us. Well, and, and that's so lovely. It's so important. I mean, he has one legacy, which is the clinic through children's health, which is so amazing. And Mm -hmm. I just, that is a living legacy right there. Um, But I do know that you invite folks on his birthday to do some special things. Tell me about that. Yes. So we celebrate acts of kindness on his birthday every year, November 4th, the first, so November 4th, 2009, Steve would have turned 41 and um, our minister and the counselors from the hospice agency helped us put together a celebration of his life. And so a lot of families gathered on the hill down the street from us and we did balloons and we had prayers and we wrote notes to Mr. Steve Um, It was a great celebration. And then the next year, um, he would have turned 42, and we didn't have a big celebration. And the kids and I, well, I'd made chocolate cake, which was Steve's favorite. And then we were eating chocolate cake with no Steve. It was just really sad. And I, you know, the kids were still so young, and I felt terrible. Like, I'd planned a party, but the person wasn't there. And so I I was determined that year to make 43 better. And so in the fall before would have turned 43. The kids and I decided we would perform 43 acts of kindness in Steve's memory, but 43 seemed like a big number. So we thought we'd invite friends and I was active on Facebook and Twitter. And so I invited friends on Facebook and Twitter. And then all of a sudden it grew and grew. And we had more than 400 acts of kindness that year in his memory. And it was all over, not just Briscoe and Texas, but all over the United States. It was I think in China, in France, I'd have to go back and look. It was just amazing. And so that was the first year that we celebrated his birthday in that way. And this last year in 2020, we did 52 acts of kindness and it's just continued. Um, and Steve was a little mischievous. So it's kind of fun when like to do an act of kindness in his memory, but you don't, you know, as a stranger. So you 
We've left gift cards with notes in the grocery store and hope someone, you know, picks it up or um, we've left thing, gift cards and notes um, on people's cars. So when they come out from a store, it's there as a surprise, you know, or you pay for someone in line behind you, but they, they don't know it's you until you've left. Um, and then there, there've been some really grand gestures. Um, one was, oh, I always cry when I think of this one. So it was Cooper's first year at Auburn University. This was 2019. And um, one of my former families actually who I taught the errands, they, they always participate and they had sent um, pizzas to Cooper's dorm. They wanted <laughs> Cooper as a freshman to have pizza in the dorm. So he hosted people and that was really sweet. And then um, they did a couple of other things like they normally do. And it was the weekend after Steve's birthday in 2019. And um, I was, in a parade, strangely, in downtown Frisco. I had been named teacher of the year that year, and I was in a parade for it. And I was off the parade route, and I went to find Katie, who was waiting for me. And then there were the Aarons, this family that I taught their daughter. And they said, hey, we have something we need to show you. And I was just like, I'd been on a Jeep waving at people. I, <laughs> I had been in a parade. It was like the best day ever. People were like cheering for me. Really, they're cheering for teachers. But so we walked down the sidewalk in downtown Frisco, and there's a pavilion there. And I turn and there is Cooper and they had flown him in for the weekend. Um, I had no idea because, you know, when you're, when your child's out of state, you have a budget for travel and our budget was he was going to come home for Thanksgiving, but he came home a little bit early just for, I think we had 36 hours. It was just the best gift. And um, like, I will just never forget that feeling to see, you know, I hadn't seen him since he'd gone off to school and, I canceled all my plans that I had for that weekend and we just soaked up our time together. And that's a, the kind of gift that really would have made Steve happy. Yeah. So, and that's just it. Steve keeps giving. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I love the idea of the acts of kindness on his birthday. I just think that is such a precious way to remember him and let everyone participate <laughs> And still feel apart, you know, um, I can imagine that people share stories and their relationship with Steve, but also just you've created a whole nother, you know, uh, story along with it. I mean, it's so cool. Yeah. Well, and Cooper has some memories of his dad. Katie has really no firsthand memories. Right. Um, so a lot of her memories related to Steve are from the past few years as people have celebrated his life, you know? And so that's been really great. I was actually just this week on campus, I ran into the high school band director. The high school is just across the street from our middle school. I hadn't seen him in a while. And he said, oh, I meant to tell you back in November, one of um, my students, Mia, set down a card for me, a gift and I opened it and she was real excited. And she said, this is because of a teacher I had named Mrs. Dam and Mr. Smith, the band director, he goes, oh, I know all about that, but you tell me about it. So it was just neat to hear that, you know, families who never even knew Steve are, you know, continuing on this legacy of, of making people happy. And then, you know, Mr. Smith himself, the band director, he participates in acts of kindness. So it just, it just has a ripple effect. And that's just a, it has a, a ripple effect. Well, one of your recent yeah. articles um, 
Thank you so much for sharing that. I just, I love that idea, um, taking something so difficult and making something good out of it. I mean, yeah, it's hard to do, hard to do. But uh, one of your recent articles was about um, grief kind of hitting you out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about your experience. We call them grief bursts in our work. Um, And someone the other day called them, uh, what did they call them? Uh, A grief blast. We decided that that burst wasn't enough. (laughs) Um, Yeah, just make it bigger. We're like, okay, make it bigger. Um, What made you write the article and and what's your experience been like? Sure. Um, you know, I, I wrote that, I think we all prepare ourselves. We kind of like, kind of hold our breath on big days, right? So birthdays, anniversaries, holidays, when we know that the loss is going to be obvious, when there's a, someone who used to sit at the end of the table is no longer there, or you would expect to hear um, a story or a joke from that person. We know those days are coming, but we're not always prepared for almost like sensory details, like little things that will come out of nowhere. So mine most recently was I just had a snippet of a song in my head and I hadn't thought of the song in a long time. And it's by Nancy Griffith. And then it made me think, you know, you just have these moments where like, oh, Nancy Griffith. Oh, I went, we went to her concert. We went to the, and I was thinking, okay, we went to the concert in Los Angeles. What year was that? And I was trying to remember details. And the only person I could ask was Steve, right? But he wasn't there. I mean, I can ask Google. So, and that's what <laughs> yes, I had to now do. You can ask, yeah, I know. But it's not the same. You know, Google. Yeah, so I typed, yeah, I couldn't remember if it was 97 or 98. So I typed Nancy Griffith, Los Angeles show, and I tried to narrow it down. And I eventually found the date. And then I, I looked at a set list because I couldn't remember the, all the songs we heard. And um, so it just sort of took me down like a pathway where I wanted desperately to remember because it was at the time that Steve had surprised me with this concert and it was a great memory, but I had lost some of it. And so just having that little bit back, um, it was a blessing, but it also, I just wasn't prepared for how sad it made me feel, you know, that I didn't have him there to ask, you know, can you remind me, where did we go to dinner before the concert? Where did we sit exactly? Or we don't know when we're creating those memories we don't know necessarily how important they'll be later. Um, we don't know who the keeper of the memories are going to be all the time. Um, and so I just really struggled. And I, so I finally, I decided to listen to some Nancy Griffith and I cried and I sang along and um, I texted a friend who I was really close to at that time. And, and then I was okay, you know, because it's been since 2009. Um, you know, we da- we live daily without Steve, I've made a whole bunch of decisions without him. Um, you know, it's not what I expected as a mom. This is not where I expected to be, but sometimes I just, you know, those things out of the blue will, will hit you and we're not prepared. And I think that's okay. Right. Like it's, right. Yeah. I think it was maybe for a reason that, that I had that song in my head and I revisited the lyrics and they were really meaningful. And, um, but it also helps me remember, like how important special moments are as we're creating them because I don't know who the keeper of all my memories will be later. Right. So I'm explaining it well, but. No, I think it's so, so true because for those of us who are grieving the loss of a loved one, one of the things that I hear over and over again is, you know, I'm worried I'm going to forget. 
I'm going to forget their face. I'm going to forget their voice. I'm going to forget, you know, those happy memories that were just everyday memories. You know, it's the, the big right. event stuff. You've got photos, you've got, you know, and now it's a little different because we photograph our food, but you know, like for a right. long time, you know, we yeah. didn't have all that. Um, right. But In 1997 or eight, I wasn't blogging, right? I didn't, I didn't record everything that happened in my life. And no. so if it's not written down, I don't remember it all. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but it is so important for us to, to think about that for our loved ones. And if we can, like for your kids, you know, like you said, for your daughter, most of her memories are from other people's experience with Steve. Right. You know, because she doesn't remember it. She was small. And mm-hmm. it's it's so important to, to create something, if you can. I know I've certainly heard from folks in our gatherings and stuff. It's like, I don't know that I can do that. Like, I, I don't know if I'm ready. And, and like you said, those anniversaries, you can kind of start to prep yourself. You know, like, okay, i got to know that a few days before the anniversary, I need to get ready. But it's different when it just comes out of the blue. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just, it's, and it's, and that's to me, one of the weirdest things about grief. Like it just shows up with the lyrics of a song, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, and it was a good reminder for me. Like, so in that, that day was a rough day for me. We don't know all the people around us who might be having those grief bursts, right? So when we're interacting with others, um, I certainly didn't tell everyone at the grocery store how I was feeling that day. You know, anyone I interacted with, they didn't know um, what was going on in my heart. And so I've been trying to keep that in mind as I'm interacting with others that I really don't know their full story. I don't know what their struggles might be and where they are in a grief process, because I certainly don't want to be judged, you know, for having a grief burst in 2021. I just think it's important that we remember that everyone is on a journey and we just, we're not always privy to where they are, but it's important to be kind and understanding regardless of with of what we know about them right right I, I love thank you for sharing that because I, I think it's so true especially right now because we all have added burdens that we probably weren't prepared or thought we'd be carrying right now we've got a lot of Absolutely. added stress loss grief going on and you know we're, we're starting to get what feels like the typical world starting to come back a little bit um, but yeah. at the same time, I'm, I'm timid about it. <laughs> um, and, and in ways, it's kind of like when you were first grieving, you're kind of in this fog and it's just, you're wandering mm-hmm. around and then you start to get back into the world and it just feels odd. I mean, yeah. it just, you, you're like, why aren't all these people doing what I'm doing? Like, you know, like, don't they understand? Um, I, I, I say it many times on the podcast before, you know, in, in generations past, you could identify when someone was grieving. They either wore black or they wore an armband or the community was small enough that you knew, you know, that that person right. lost someone so that, that they were aware. Now that's not true. So I think what you're saying about, you know, not knowing everyone's story is, is such a way to, to show compassion um, right. to others in this time. Well, you talked a little bit about your faith and you came to a faith and grief uh, gathering. During yes. this during as you were grieving, but also during this last year, um, what have you learned about your faith, about your connection to the, the sacred and holy, and 
what's God done for you? No, I did not grow up in the church. And so I was baptized right after we got married and became really involved in United Methodist Church um, as an adult. I've just come to rely on so many parts about the church and the community, you know, just having a group of people with shared um, values or maybe, maybe not exactly this, you know, we're not all in the same place, but we kind of know the direction we're going and we're kind of on a similar path has been really helpful. I find a lot of, I'm a word person. So, you know, I have like little, little bits of scripture in no way do I know entire <laughs> verses and can tell you, you know, all the citations, but um, little snippets of hymns and little snippets of scripture that I rely on. One of the most important things for me has been understanding my identity you know, we all have different identities. And for so long, my identity was Steve's wife. Um, and so then, you know, transitioning to, to being the widow of Steve, like, is that my identity? Well, not really. I mean, it's part of who I am. And then is my identity rooted in my kids? Well, that's great when they make good choices, right? But when your kids make bad choices, then you start to question, well, is that really my identity? I've really become... Um, I try to center myself on reminding myself that I, my identity is rooted in is being a child of God first. And that that is my, that's where I start. And so no matter what my current role is, and right now that's, you know, a single widowed mom and a teacher and a volunteer and a writer, all of those things can be taken away, right? Like just my, like my identity as being Steve's wife was taken away by a brain tumor, you know, that role shifted. But if I continue to root myself as a child of God who believes in Jesus Christ, then it provides me strength. And I know that that can't be taken away, that I could lose all my jobs tomorrow and tragedy could befall my family members. You know, I hope that doesn't happen. But if it did, I still am rooted in knowing that I was created by God and I was placed on earth to improve the life of, uh, lives of others, no matter what my current role is. And so even in the pandemic, that's been really helpful because again, so much has been stripped away, right? Um, yeah. I haven't been able to travel like most, you know, most of us haven't traveled very much. Um, we haven't been able to celebrate friends the way we were used to. Like those things that I always thought, well, I'm really good at this. I'm really good at planning a trip and executing a trip. I'm really good at celebrating a friend on her birthday, whatever it is. Even when all that is taken away from us, it's good to know that there's something stable. And for me, that's knowing that I was created by God and what my purpose is in life. Thank you for sharing that. That's so so powerful. Um, especially when, like you said, your identity changes after grief. Um, yeah. Sometimes it's hard to see that, but I love that, that sentiment. I think that's lovely. Well, during this time, um, the last year, but you know, even before that, uh, in addition to your faith, what's brought you comfort and hope? It's a good question. Reading, I always, you know, I've, I've actually read more than normal. And I just find a lot of um, comfort in reading other people's ideas and seeing their version of optimism where they see hope um, influences me. Being able to still connect with friends, you know, even though we don't see each other as often. You know, we're really lucky, like you said earlier, to have technology that keeps us in touch. Honestly, having a vaccine a year after coronavirus gives me a lot of hope and optimism that 
man, there are a lot of ways that we humans have screwed up the earth and, you know, have led, <laughs> led people astray. But at the same time, we're really creative people and innovative. And um, when there's a common cause, you know, we can, we can pull together. And so that's been really hopeful to me. Um, and teaching, it's really hard not to be optimistic, you know, when you teach, because I've got these 78 souls that, that I pour into every day and then they refresh me and they all have big dreams. And, um, you know, I've got this room full of engineers and innovators and pediatricians and computer scientists, you know, like they all have big things they want to do and they are not pessimistic about their future. You know, they all strongly believe in what they're doing. And so if, if they're optimistic, then I'm going to be optimistic with them. So I feel really fortunate that I do, that I work with children because they, I mean, they just, they're so excited, you know, still about <laughs> life. And I mean, there's some cynicism there. I think kids today are a little more cynical <laughs> at a younger age than we were. Maybe I don't think I'm being um, jaded about that, but, but they also have had a rougher overall life, I think, in many ways than other generations, right? Like they've already been exposed to so many things. I had a student who was studying, all my kids got to choose someone to study, someone who changed society for the better. And one student chose Abraham Lincoln. And this was not long after the um, attacks in Atlanta mm. on the people who'd been killed at the massage or the salons. And so one of my students, um, he was on Zoom and he said, Mrs. Dam, do you know about the, um, the hatred toward Asian people? Do you know about Atlanta? And I said, I do. And he said, what I'd like to write in my project is that the work of Abraham Lincoln is being unraveled by people who believe that it's okay to kill others because of their race. Is that okay? And I said, You're at, you are absolutely able to write whatever it is you believe. Um, but he's 12 and he sees that. But I, while that sounds um, dark and, and difficult, he also wrote about the hope and how his generation can reverse that and help people understand that it's truly about, you know, content of our character and um, it shouldn't matter, you know, what color you are or where your family is from. And so I have a lot of hope that these kids are able to see problems today and they can look for solutions. Yeah. Maybe after each class, you can shoot out the best um, from each class to the rest of us as cynical old yes. folks could, could get a dose of that, you know, because... Yes. It, and I love that. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes adults give kids sort of like... They don't know. They're too young, but they do know. And this generation of kids, and your kids are the same age as my kids are, um, mm -hmm. in their lifetime, they have seen so much loss, challenge. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we talk a lot about the greatest generation, and this right. one seems to, to keep being positive um, yeah. e even in, in the face of so many different challenges over and over and over again. Um, so there is hope there too. I agree. Absolutely. Well, Tyra, thank you so much for your time today, especially after school. 
<laughs> for joining us. Of course. And um, thank you so much for your uh, your writing. Um, I always enjoy your column. I think it's always fun. Um, I'm one of those old people that reads the newspaper. Um, you know, I still, I'm thankful for you. Yes, and I still, I still, it's so weird to, it, it's, you know, I like reading the paper and then I read it online and then I'm like, hey, I've already read this. <laughs> so, let's not do that. But anyway, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Shelly. Would you like to be a podcast producer? Go to faithandgrief.org slash donate and support this podcast and the work that Faith and Grief does for those who are grieving.